Christmas. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Come on, man. All right, I'll try. I'm trying the best I can over here. Um, this is the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio, as you might have guessed. And the number to call to be on the air is 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Let us go to Jonathan in Galveston. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Patrick. Um, years ago, I listened to a debate between a team of Catholics and a team of Protestants in which you were a participant, obviously on the Catholic side. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, forgive me if I don't quote you verbatim, but I recall you saying um, to the Protestants, if you can point to one doctrine in the past 2,000 years that's changed, I'll become mm -hmm. a Protestant. And it was great because obviously they couldn't do it. Um, I, my question is, if you were to pose that same challenge today, and a Protestant was to point to the new catechism or the latest catechism and say, okay, here's the change regarding the death penalty. Mm -hmm. How would you respond to that? Easy peasy. Um, first of all, it wasn't I who said that. Um, I led the team of, of the three Catholic um, debaters. There were three Protestant debaters, and it was one of the other two Catholics who said that. So it wasn't something oh. that came out of my mouth. But that's okay. You, you know, don't don't feel bad because sometimes it's hard to tell whose voice is whose. But that wasn't I who said that. But even if I had said that, it's not a debating technique I would have used. But in any case, um, the change on the church's pastoral approach to the death penalty is not a change of doctrine. And that's the thing to, to distinguish here. So the church recognizes as of, let's say, 19... 19 and eight, 19 and 92, let's say, was when the catechism was changed by Pope John Paul II. And prior to that point, when the catechism was issued in 1988, it had the standard boilerplate language about um, capital punishment being something we, you know, it's deplorable and we wish we didn't have to do it, but it is sometimes necessary and it's not intrinsically immoral. And I'm just giving you a rough paraphrase, but the original language comported with what the church said on the topic for 2,000 years. What the popes and councils who might touch upon the subject had said, certainly what the Bible said, we know that God enjoined capital punishment. Look at Genesis, uh, where God says, "By if a man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So the Lord prescribed capital punishment, for example, for murder, and it was also employed for other sins and crimes like homosexual activity and adultery and things of that nature. So doctrinally speaking, biblically, uh, ecclesiastically, and so on, the church has always recognized that, that uh, capital punishment is something that is not in itself intrinsically immoral. Now, what has changed beginning under Pope John Paul II, when he wrote Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, this encyclical is where he dramatically shifted in the direction of, let's get entirely away from capital punishment. And so his encyclical said what the Catechism was later revised to say, 
that because of modern methods of incarceration and various other things that he brought into the discussion, he says capital punishment should be practically non-existent. And that was the wording that found its way into the catechism when he revised it. So he didn't change the doctrine. Uh, there is no such thing, quote-unquote, as a doctrine of capital punishment. That's something else to consider. It's not like a defined dogma of the faith, as is the, the Trinity— uh, three persons in one God, or transubstantiation, or any of the other dogmatic statements of the Church, there is no such thing as a dogma that was promulgated on capital punishment. Rather, it was the Church's understanding that this is not something that is in itself intrinsically evil in the way that murder would be, uh, abortion being a species of murder. So, it's important to keep that in mind because even that alone would disqualify this as being an example that might be a contradiction or, an, or a, um, a disproof of the claim that the church hasn't changed its doctrines. So what we are seeing is a further shift in this pontificate, even further in the direction of the church ruling out, and, and the current pope used the word inadmissible, now, these are examples of the Church changing her pastoral approach to an issue. We already have 2,000-plus years of scriptural and patristic and ecclesiastical witness that, in, that capital punishment is not intrinsically evil. But nowadays, the Church has turned away from it as a way of, of punishing criminals. So that's the distinction. So if you look at it that way, Jonathan, you can see that not only does it not really touch upon the point that that other debater made, because it's not a dogmatic definition in any case, um, but also it's a matter of the Church's pastoral approach to an issue as opposed to the doctrinal underpinnings of that issue. Does that distinction seem clearer now? It does. Thank you. Um, I do have a question now that you say that. Um, sure. I, I always thought there was a difference between between a dogmatic declaration and the doctrine, uh, the doctrine being like the official teachings of the church and dogmatic declarations being uh, when the Pope declares something ex cathedra. So could you help me understand, are they the same doctrines and dogmas? Mm, yes, they are in a sense. And here's the distinction. So a, a doctrine is a teaching. That means this is part of the gospel, the teaching that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is true God and true man, uh, the teaching that Jesus is truly present in the Holy Eucharist, the teaching that Scripture is inspired by God, the teaching that baptism regenerates the soul. It's not merely a symbol. And we could go on, but those are examples of doctrines. This is the teachings of the gospel. Now, at times in the life of the Church, it became necessary for a doctrine to be formally defined, and this is far more often than not took place in an ecumenical council. And that is where, for example, in the First Council of Nicaea, to use one example, that is where the Church defined the doctrine of the divinity of Christ in such a way that it would thwart the Arians who were trying to make Jesus into a kind of superhuman creature, but someone less than God, wasn't tr truly God by nature. And the Church, in defending the truth that Jesus is true God and true man, formally defined this dogma 
that Jesus is true God and true man. And throughout the life of the church, that's typically what these ecumenical councils would do. They, they weren't always about defining dogmas, but very often they did. And so when you use the word dogma, what that has the connotation of is that this is a doctrine that has been formally declared, formally defined by the church, and uh, most commonly in a church council. So dogmas and doctrines are the same thing, but a dogma denotes that this has been formally declared. And um, if we were to think long enough, we could come up with examples of non-dogmatic teachings. I don't believe that dogmatically the Church has ever declared um, the existence of the devil, but it is a doctrine of the faith because it comes to us from Scripture. I don't know that that has ever been defined as a dogma in a council. It might have been, and maybe just escaped my attention. But it doesn't need to be defined as a dogma to be a doctrine, to be part of the gospel. Do you see the distinction? I do. That is very helpful. Um, and so would I be correct in saying that the catechism is not a uh, list of doctrines, but it's, uh, it is teachings from the Church, but it's, they're just not doctrines, I guess. Is well, it's, it's a lot of different things. Primarily, it's doctrine. So, yes, it is a compendium to the Church's doctrine. In fact, Pope John Paul II, in the opening, you know, the, the introduction refers to it as a sure guide to the faith meaning that if you want to know the teachings of the Church, the Catechism is a sure guide to that. But it also includes customs, traditions, and by traditions I'm not referring to apostolic tradition because that's part of the Gospel. I'm referring to, for example, um, the small-t traditions like uh, liturgical seasons, for example, um, or the way in which the, bliss, the bishop would bless the, the chrism oil. Um, these are all things that are not doctrinal in nature, they're related to doctrines like the doctrine of the sacraments, for example, but these customs or disciplines that, that exist in the Church are also discussed in detail in the Catechism. So it's not all doctrinal, but the, all the doctrines of the Church are found, and certainly all the dogmas of the Church are found in the Catechism. That is extremely helpful. I really appreciate that, and I appreciate all you do, Patrick. God bless you. you and Relevant Radio. Well, we sure appreciate that, Jonathan. Thank you. Great question, by the way. Uh, I had an email that come, came in a moment ago, and I actually it came in yesterday. I don't have it in front of me, so forgive me. But it was a question from a lady asking about someone she knows who's going to be ordained a deacon soon and wondered if I had a recommendation for a gift for the deacon. So, I mean, there are a lot of things you could give that, that would be helpful, but I would recommend a book called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma and it's published by Tan Books, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. Here's why I recommend this as a gift for a man who's going to be ordained a deacon. Because, first of all, he's going to be dealing with the sacramental life of the Church, baptisms and weddings specifically, and from time to time, deacons are permitted to preach. It's not a common thing, but from time to time, deacons will preach. So in order for a deacon to preach well, and this is true of priests, of course, but in order for a deacon to preach well, he has to have a sound, thorough grasp on the Church's teachings. So this is something that this book will help. It's a great resource that he can have on his, his bookshelf, and when he's going to preach a sermon on angels, let's say, or something that pertains to the readings of the day, he'll be able to open this book 
and find the specific meaty information that the church has for him uh, regarding any of these different things, judgment, uh, heaven and hell, anything you can imagine is found in this one volume called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. So I think every deacon would very much enjoy having this book as a good guide for preparation for sermons and sacramental duty. Thank you for that email. Let's go now to David in Wilmington, North Carolina. Hello, David. Hi, Patrick. Uh, During Christ's scourging and passion overall, would Christ's Mm -hmm. blood on the floor um, count as the Eucharistic precious blood, um, since he, or, or, or would it not, since he hasn't resurrected yet? And hypothetically, if, it, if the Church had kept like a 2,000-year-old container of the blood mm-hmm. from Good Friday, would, would that be the most divine or important item on earth, like the Shroud or That's a really cross? good question. That's a very intriguing question. So let's, let's parse that out a little bit. So the blood that was shed from Christ's wounds in the scourging at the pillar, not to mention the crowning of thorns, would not have been the same as the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist because the Holy Eucharist is the reality of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. So sacramentally, it's a different mode of reality. Now, the the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is indeed the glorified, resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity. So the blood of Jesus is certainly part of that, as you can tell from the formula, but in a different way. So in the, in the Passion, the Lord had not yet died and he had not yet resurrected. So he was not sitting in glory at the right hand of the Father. So his physical blood that came from his wounds during the, the Passion, not to mention during his circumcision when he was eight days old, um, that's not, it's the same blood of Jesus, we can say that, but not in the same manner. It's not present to us in the same manner. So it would not be the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. It would be analogous to it, but not the same thing. Do you see the distinction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever been asked that question before, but it's an intriguing question. Yeah. Um, so if the Church had, like, had a container of, like, like say, if, if they just happened to, like, wipe up the blood from the scourging, mm-hmm. as depicted in the film Passion of the Christ— um, if they had like kept like a jar or something right. that had the blood in it, would that be like open to like um, devotion of sorts, or like not like, or you know, like how the shroud of the Holy mean. Cross is revered? Yeah. In other words, would it be worthy of veneration? Sure. Um, if we can venerate pieces of the true cross on which Jesus shed His blood, all the more so could we venerate His blood itself. I mean, it, the cross is lesser as a creature than the body of Christ is as a creature. So yes, we could do that if that were the case. Now, it may be that those traces of blood that might remain on the Shroud of Turin, I presume that that's the authentic Shroud of Jesus. Only time will tell, but let's assume for a minute that it is. We venerate the Shroud. We 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 would have respect for and and. I'm trying to choose my words here, Um, reverence for and veneration of the Shroud. Let's say that we discovered definitively tomorrow that the Shroud of Turin is for sure, no question about it, that's the Shroud of Jesus. His body touched that cloth. 
and the markings are from his body, and maybe there's blood there. So I think we could safely say, yes, this is worthy of veneration at the highest level, but it's not as high as the Eucharist. The Eucharist is even higher than that, because in that, Christ comes to us in his entirety, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in his glorified, resurrected existence. So it's not a corpse, it's not some dried blood, it's not a piece of flesh or a fleck of bone or something like that. It's higher than all of those temporal things because this is the glorified, resurrected Jesus. You see what I'm saying? So even if there were such a jar yeah. of blood, it wouldn't be as it wouldn't be as glorious and as high in in the order of things as the Eucharist would be. Cool. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, no doubt about that. Uh, well, I appreciate the call, David. Thank you. All right, break time. And uh, we'll come right back to the phones. If you've been trying to get in and you've been getting a busy signal, just hit redial. We do have a line that just opened up, and you can grab it if you call now. 888-914-9149, sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. You've been listening to The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app, and I've got about 39 more minutes straight ahead. Today we'd like to thank Santi, who's listening in Maine, for donating his 1983 Jaguar XJ6. Classy. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting RelevantRadio.com slash car. That's RelevantRadio.com slash car. Born to be wild. Compelling insights. Unpredictable conversations. Born to be wild. Patrick Madrid is on, coast to coast, on Relevant Radio. I was ready for that. Ah, all right. <laughs> you win this round. I I had a feeling it was coming. I just, I could sense it. All right. It's pretty good, though. All right. Now, the newcomers who haven't heard this lately, let's just take a quick break from this and just... You need to play Maggie so people understand. People who are new to the show, they don't understand what what was that? Why did they do that? So just give them a little Maggie and they'll understand. At the intersection of faith and culture, the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. That's a thing of beauty. It's still the best. I mean, it's, <laughs> it I've, I've tried, I have 30 of these things in front of me, and that's still, that. It, that's the first and the best. Oh, uh, and it brings such a smile to my face. People say, you're twisted in your sense of humor. I guess that's true. The engineers run in, and they're like, what, what happened? <laughs> like, don't worry, It just goes worry. to silence. The thing that's so satisfying about it is that it's so dissatisfying. You don't get the payoff. It just stops. So if you've wondered why we do that, it's just my twisted sense of humor. What can I say? Uh, 888-914-9149. How about Will now in Denver? Good morning, Will. Good morning. I had a question on uh, moral relativism. Okay. And I know you've asked this question a thousand times, but it's the Gestapo officer coming to the household and you're, you know, you've got a family of Jews in the basement. Mm-hmm. And he asks, are there any Jews there? And of course you do have Jews. But my question is, I think I've heard you say that it would be a lie if you told him that there were no Jews there. 
but my thought on this is we have to answer his real question. He's not taking a census for Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's wanting to know if there's Jews there that he can capture. Let's say he asks you very pointedly, are you hiding Jews in your house? So it's super specific. Just to make it easier, right? Right. Well, mm-hmm. but, but that's still not his real question, right? I mean, he's an agent of the devil, and he's going to be deceitful. He... He can't even himself ask his real question. But I can answer his real question. I mean, wouldn't that seem appropriate? Tell me how you would propose to do that. Well, I could say no. Because what he's asking me, are there any Jews there that I can kill? And I could be coy about it, you know. Mm -hmm. Jews, you want to kill none of those here. You know? Yeah, this is what you're describing. There's a word for a term for it. it's called mental reservation. And mental reservation can take a variety of forms, but the form you're talking about is where you are answering technically accurately, but in a way that you know he will not understand. In other words, he is understanding his question in a way other than how you are answering it. And it's a form of mental reservation, meaning that you you know that you're misleading him by technically giving an honest answer, but it's not really the question he is asking you. In his mind, it's something different. So uh, there is a place for that if you ask me. Um, I come back to the analogy that I think about when this when this scenario comes up, Will. Are you hiding Jews in your attic or your basement? Somewhere in your house, are you hiding Jews? Because we're killing Jews. We've got a truck out front to load those Jews up and take them to the death camp. Are you hiding any of them in your house right now? Now, your way of saying no, because you're you're answering what you think his question entails, which is, do you have any Jews that I can kill? I understand your logic. Um, that would not be a, a more common form of mental reservation. <clears throat> well, but, it makes sense to me because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's the reason why you, you told your wife to put the family in the basement <clears throat> and lock the door. You told them to be quiet. You pulled the drapes. You know exactly why he's here. Mm-hmm. But he's going to be deceitful. Well, I don't think I don't think that's where this would pivot. I think I understand your logic. I would put it this way. Let's say that you're, just to make it a little easier here, let's say that you're renting an apartment and the the Nazi at the door says, are you hiding any Jews in your house? I would say no. Let's say there's a whole family of Jews in the back room. I'd say no. And I could be answering that question honestly because this isn't my house. This is somebody else's building that I'm renting. I have a house on the other side of town. And since you're asking, am I hiding any Jews in my house? I can honestly tell you, no, I'm not, because I'm thinking of my house across town. He's thinking this apartment. That would be an example of what of what I'm proposing here. It's a way of answering truthfully, but not in the way the other person understands. But I wanted to go back to this analogy, Will. I'm, I, I always think about the poor people who are on 9-11 who were trapped in the buildings, the, the Twin Towers above the area where the planes had crashed. 
And you remember how horrible that was because we were seeing people jumping from these buildings trying to escape the flames. So they were jumping to oh, their yeah. deaths. They weren't, they didn't get up that morning thinking, I'm going to kill myself today. But they did that rather than deal with the un, unimaginable pain of, of roasting to death. Seems like this is a similar thing where you have no good option. There's no, there's no way to do something. You have two options, one of the two. You can do one or you can do the other. Um, I suppose there's a third option. You could say nothing, but it'd probably take you away to the death camp. So to say, no, I'm not hiding any Jews in the attic, to me would be similar to jumping out of the, of the Twin Towers to avoid the flames, because there doesn't seem to be any other option. That's my way of looking at it, Will. What do you think? Well, my my question is though, if if you are answering it that way, um, answering his real question, and you said no, are you sinning? You know, because we're supposed to avoid sin um, at all costs. So, answering mm-hmm. this way, are we offending God? I don't think so. I think there are circumstances where you really have no choice. Either choice is going to be problematic in some way, so you choose the lesser of the two evils. And in a way, your freedom is diminished to some extent, because you're not, just like the freedom of the people in the Twin Towers, their freedom is diminished. They only had two options, stay and burn to death or jump out the window and die. There was no third option for them. Either one involved death, and they chose the one that was less terrible than the former. Wonderful, Patrick. Thank you. I've listened to you for many years. Thank you for all you do. You're welcome, Will. These are good and important topics to grapple with, no doubt about that. And there are rigorists who would say, nope, it's still a sin if you even, under those dire circumstances, if you try to deflect or, or, or mislead the person, even that is still unacceptable. I don't, I don't personally go that rigorously in that direction, but there are some who do. So you might run into that at some point. Um, it, it's, it's a mysterious and difficult question to know exactly how to answer, but that's where I find myself when I evaluate it. Thanks, Will. How about Laura? I'm sorry, Nora now in Kentucky. Good morning, Nora. Hi, good morning, Patrick. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, So recently I started volunteering at church um, with the Hispanic community and uh, to teach um, our CIA. And this was back in September. Now, a month into the class, I started noticing that... um, they would talk about their spouses and their family. And then I said to myself, wait a minute, you're asking for for first Holy communion and confirmation and Mm -hmm. come to find out they're all living, you know, with their partner, not married by church. Now, all of them, every single last one of them, or just some of them, um, all of them, all of them, because they're, they're all adults. And just one, one is single and he's, he's on his own. He's, he doesn't have a girlfriend or not living with anybody. So all of them. So there's a couple that go, um, uh, that are going to get married. So they're going to receive their sacraments all together on their, when they get married. 
So they're in our class because they're going to get married um, and they need their confirmation. But the other ones are there for their first Holy Communion. Um, One, the youngest one is 22. She wants to Those details are not important. Tell me what, what the question is, Nora. So for my peace of mind, we went to the priest already. Okay, and this is what he told us. Um, He said he had spoken to the bishop, and the bishop had said, um, no, they they cannot receive the sacraments, except for that couple that are bringing their marriage into the church. Um, So then our priest said, I'm willing to roll with it. Those were his words. I'm I'm willing to roll with it if they get married within a year or we can just give them their certificate and they can delay their sacraments. So you mean like give a fraudulent um, confirmation certificate or baptismal certificate, even though they're going to receive the sacrament in the future? No, just uh, a certificate that they completed the, the RCIA classes. Okay. So let's look at this. Um, Receiving a certificate that says you completed the RCIA class, that's nice, and it's not dependent upon rectifying this situation. I mean, that can be given to somebody who is interested and completes the course, and that's the end of it. Sacraments are a different Mm -hmm. story. So, number one, if the bishop is saying, no, these people under these circumstances cannot receive the sacraments until they're properly disposed to receive them, that's the answer, because the bishop has the authority, and if he, once he knows the, situ- the si- situation, excuse me, knows the circumstances, then he has the authority to say yay or nay. And if he says nay, mm-hmm. then it's incumbent upon the people themselves, but also the pastor, to follow the the instruction of the bishop and make sure that the people are properly prepared to receive their sacraments. And when they are, then they can receive them. So is this a case where people don't want to stop living together as married people and get their life on track and get their marriage blessed, et cetera? They just want to keep doing what they're doing? Or what's the what's the sticking point here? I believe they, they join our class because they were uh they're wanting their sacraments, but they never they were ignorant. And and we were too. I mean, this is a small community, a small Hispanic community. We didn't. We were at fault too for not asking uh, from the get go what's their situation, too. So we did not want to turn them away and say we're stopping the classes. And because um, our goal is is Jesus, our goal is not to turn them away, you know. But. Um, Maybe, Nora, I, I'm just not understanding what your question is. Could you clarify that for me, please? Yes. So I began volunteering as, for the RCIA class, and these were all adults. So there's three of us, three adults teaching these classes. And we, uh, within a month um, of teaching the class, little by little I came to find out their personal life. And they kept saying, "My." But do me a favor, Nora, if you don't mind, just put this in the form of a question so that I can understand what we. What would you like me to to respond sin. to? They're they're all living in sin, and they want their first holy communion, their holy communion and uh, confirmation. 
and confession. Okay, so here's what needs to be done. Hey, everybody, uh, all you men and women who are living together and you're not married, you need to, number one, part company, live separately. Now, they may say, well, we have little kids at home. Okay. The next thing to do if you're not if you're not able to feasibly do that is you live as brother and sister, you sleep in separate bedrooms, you don't do the things that married people do, and you go to confession. When the time comes, you're ready to be received in the church. You go, you're going to make your confession for those of you who have been baptized. You'd be truly sorry for your sins. You receive the Lord's forgiveness, and you receive the sacraments. And then you will be in a position to have your marriage convalidated. And that's a relatively easy process, and the parish priest will know exactly what's entailed, and he can take care of that for them. Then they all lived happily ever after. And if they say, well, no, we're living together and we like this arrangement, then you, the priest would say what the bishop said, if I understood you correctly. Well, okay, I'm sorry to hear that, but you're not going to be able to receive your sacraments if you're living in the state of serious sin. So it's a rather simple yay or nay. It's either this or that. They can receive the sacraments when they're ready to do so, but if this is the obstacle, then they need to cease doing this and go to confession. I know. Thank you. That's what, mm-hmm. I, uh, that's, what's, that's what I know. That's the teaching that I know. But we were told this from the priest, so now... Well, all I can say about that is that if the priest defies his bishop and the bishop has said, nope, these people can't receive the sacraments till they get the situation squared away, and the priest says, well, I'll roll with it, <laughs> um, he's not being a very good priest then because he's defying his bishop in something that his bishop has a right to say. Do this or do that. So I hope that's helpful, Nora. Thank you. Be right back. Thanks to network sponsor PushPay. PushPay offers parishes a platform for tracking donations and sacraments, overseeing schedules, mobile apps to help manage your administrative load, and much more. Info at relevantradio.com slash pushpay. That's relevantradio.com slash pushpay. Keeping it relevant. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Join the conversation at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Now that's a horn section right there. 888-914-9149. Cyrus, you mentioned you had an email you wanted to read. Yeah, this is in response to a caller in the second hour named Jenny who was asking about fasting. And the email says... uh, uh, let's see, who is it from? It's anonymous. It's anonymous. anonymous. Okay. Yep. So it says, good morning, Patrick. I just wanted to respond to the caller who is asking how to give things up for Lent in a way that isn't self-serving or self-satisfying, but in a way that serves only God. I have struggled with the same dilemma for many years, and I think I may have arrived at a solution. Mm. As a woman, my appearance is on my mind more often than I am proud of. This year, and I resolved to try my best to stick to this beyond Lent, and in fact, to make it a routine in my life, I am giving up looking in the mirror apart from my morning routine. Hmm. Uh, Let's see, when I am giving myself permission to assure that my appearance is in check for the day and at night when I am brushing my teeth and washing my face. Mm -hmm. I am also giving up looking in a store window, for example, and other sneaky ways of checking myself out. 
this is this is turning out to be one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing things I've ever given up. But I am determined to stick with it. It is the first thing I have given up in a sincere attempt to get out of my own way and let God be my center. Thanks for all you do, Patrick. You're the best. Hmm. Boy, that is really insightful. And that's from Anonymous, huh? That's right. And how difficult would that be? Well, I mean, I, I don't know, like for any given person, but I, I had never thought about that, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror by way of admiring. Maybe what she's referring to is to, you know, concern about how she looks to other people. And although that's not sinful, I mean, it, it could become sinful in some extreme case, but it is a sort of, it could be maybe a sort of vanity, perhaps, um, I think that's a very creative way to fast from something that, or abstain from something that is common to most people. Um, I had never thought about that before, and it makes perfect sense to me. So I don't know if the ladies in the audience are saying, hmm, you know, maybe I might want to try that. Uh, maybe some of the men as well, I don't know. Uh, but I hadn't thought of that before. So I like the way she put it. How did she put it? Sneaky ways of of looking at my reflection in the store window or something. Yeah. How did she say that? Yeah. How, where is that? Uh, where is that? Um, giving myself permission. Uh, yes. I'm also giving up looking in a store window, for example, and other sneaky ways of checking myself <laughs> out. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I know that I sneak on my, on what I've, what I've given up and, and then I'm like, all right, what am I doing? Stop. Stop doing that. <laughs> Rationalizing. That's right. Yeah. You know, one one term for this is called custody of the eyes. And it's a very effective thing if you can learn how to do it. And anyone can learn how to do it when you you refuse to look at something that is benign. You know, hey, there's a truck coming down the street. I want to look at it. No, you're not going to look at it. Or there's a tree over there. Your instinct is to look at it. You don't look at it. And it, not that there's anything wrong with the thing itself. But as Jesus says, if you're faithful in little things... You'll be faithful in big things. If you're unfaithful in little things, you'll be unfaithful in big things. So it's such a little thing, not easy to do, though, at first, to control what you look at. And so people who practice custody of the eyes, they get into the habit, and it becomes a stable disposition for them, where their default is, I can control my eyes. Because you get in the habit of, like this lady, an anonymous, is saying she's in the habit now of controlling what she looks at, not that there's anything sinful about looking at your reflection in a mirror or something, but by mastering this little appetite for the eyes to rove, then when something significant comes along, you're going to have the reins tightly in your hand and you'll be able to make the horse analogous to your appetites go where you want them to go. So yes, I think that's, that's very true. good. How'd she get in here? <clears throat> I haven't heard from those ladies in a while. They're taking vacations. They're taking some PTO from the Patrick Madrid show. Now the grass is kind of angry at us, though. Cool beans. Onward, help. Onward Let's home. talk to the trees. Oh. They're just out talking to the trees, <laughs> That's my Patrick. favorite part. My favorite part. Oh. Oh. Uh, you don't want that on your comic record. No, you really don't. No, you really don't. Um, let's go to Beth in Illinois. Hello, Beth. Welcome. Hi, Patrick. Um, I'll get right to my point. Um, okay. My son, uh, we've been, I've called before, um, we've been estranged from our 
uh, almost 20-year-old son for about mm. eight months now. Mm. Um, and he is living locally um, with his girlfriend's family and his girlfriend in the same bedroom and everything else. Okay. Um, so it's really, we had a period of reconciliation, uh, we were working to reconciliation um, from about Thanksgiving until Christmas, and okay. things were going really much better. He was in contact with us. He spent the holidays with us, things like that. Okay. Um, and about a month ago, um, we ha- there was just a small comment that we had between us was just kind of trying to clear the air of how we can make things better with our relationship. And for what, I don't really know what reason exactly, but he basically just cut off communication or if it was too hard to talk about with us okay. or if it was just he just didn't like to admit guilt, et cetera. Um, but since that time, he's basically gone mm-hmm. off the radar and not responded to any phone calls, texts, things like that. Even, even I just ask how he's doing. That's all I really care about because mm-hmm. there's a mental health component here with him as well um, that he's still dealing with. And from my perspective, I'm trying to contact him because I care and I worry about him um, as any parent would. Um, I'm, we're not getting any response. My husband get a response. I don't get a response. Okay. And I don't know if I'm being foolish to keep beating my head against the wall and reaching out and if I should just stop that or if I should continue because I am concerned. Um, I do. I'm in contact with the mother of mm-hmm. his girlfriend. Um, we don't have a lot of. I don't know. We don't see eye to eye with him, obviously, but we we mm-hmm. get along okay. He will talk to me, but. I really don't know if I'm getting a lot of true information or, you know, the true picture of how things are with him. Right. So we're kind of between a rock and hard place. So should we just give up for the time being and leave him be for a while? Or should we I continue have... to try to? Yeah, I have a few thoughts on that, Beth, if, you, if you're if you looking for some advice for yes, what it's worth. Yes. Um, okay, so for two reasons, what I would suggest is you you go completely radio silent. You don't text him, you don't call him, you don't in any way initiate contact with him. And sounds like you've been doing that, you and your husband, or more you, whatever combination. So he's accustomed to you constantly trying to reach out, and he just, by silence, he lets you know that he's not going to talk to you. Would that be a fair description of what's going on? Yes. Yeah. So if I were if I were in your situation, I would just absolutely cut off any effort to reach him. Don't text him. Don't do any of those things. And there are two reasons why. Number one, it's a way of tacitly saying to him, okay, um, you're on your own. You are making decisions that you're going to have to account for. And so be it. And, you know, we're busy. Your father and I are busy with our lives. We've got things that we're doing and we love you, but we've already told you what you need to know and you're making your own decisions now. So that message is implicit in your silence. The second thing is that it shows him that he doesn't have power over you. And think of it this way. Right now he has power over you because by his silence, you're in reaction mode and you're scrambling after him. You're trying to you know, get him to to say something, do something, respond to us, please. And so every single time you text him or you call him and it goes to voicemail, you're handing him more power. So you okay. don't give him any more power and then he won't have power over you and he'll know he doesn't have more power over you and he's going to start wondering what's going on. 
How come my mom isn't right. calling me? How come my mom isn't texting me? And the longer it goes, the more awkward and difficult it becomes for him. And eventually, I, can, I can't guarantee it, but I think I can almost guarantee that eventually he's going to circle back to you because it's just going to be too so. weird for him and he won't know what's going on and he won't know what's in your mind and he doesn't know what you're thinking anymore because you're not telling him. And he has no, pow no more power. He's not cracking right. the whip. You know, you're withholding that. Would you that just from say him. indefinitely? Would, indefinitely. Would you say to like stop indefinitely? Okay. Indefinitely. So like until we hear from him. A basically. month, six okay. months, a year, whatever it takes. But he will okay. eventually, okay. it'll become too much for him. And he won't okay. be able to live with that. He won't want to live with that. And he will eventually circle back to you. I can almost any, guarantee any it. Any advice on, on, I'm sorry, that's great advice. Thank you. Um, any advice on how to handle uh, you know, my, my own emotions over not knowing how he is. And, you know, I, I've tried really hard and I may had success in kind of putting it on the back burner, focusing mm -hmm. on other things like some other kids, focusing on my husband, you know, the, the good things in life that we're supposed to be focusing on. Um, and but it, just lately out of the blue, something will hit me and I'll just, you know, cry or get sad and thinking about him. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah, I'm sorry. Here's what you can do. It's okay, Beth. Here's what you can do. Um, I, and I'm, I don't mean to quiet you down, <clears throat> but I know what you're asking. Sure. Right. Ask his guardian angel to look over him. He already does, of course. But ask his guardian angel, I'm his mom, and I know God appointed you to look after my son. And as his mom, I'm asking you in a special way, look after my son, please. And, okay. you, you know, in your devotion to the holy angels, this is something pleasing to God, and it will, it will be done. And, and he will do that. Okay. It's not as though he's going to say, I'm sorry, Beth, I'm too busy over here. He will honor <laughs> your prayer. Here's something that, you can, that I hope will bring you a little bit of comfort. The great St. Monica, who was okay. the mother of St. Augustine, who was a wayward boy, and then he was a wayward man, and he was living the uh, the fourth century equivalent of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He was doing exactly what your son is doing now. And St. Monica was asking advice from the Bishop of Milan, uh, Bishop Ambrose, and she, she was telling him her tale of woe. And he said to her, words to the effect, he said, Monica, now it's time for you to speak less to Augustine about God and more to God about Augustine. And I think she did the same thing. She sort of went radio silent and she stopped badgering him and stopped trying to get his attention. And she just became a relentless battering ram of prayer. And as St. Augustine describes this years later in his confessions, he attributes those faithful, continuous prayers of his mother on his behalf for his conversion. And she adopted this approach of saying kind of a hands-off approach. Lord, he's your son too. And I'm trusting in you to bring him back where he belongs. And it really worked for Augustine. You, you see what well, I mean? Patrick, I have to say, yes. Um, and I have to say, I think it was providential that I got through to you today because mm -hmm. I just came from daily mass and I spent basically almost an hour after mass in church praying the rosary, praying for him and just trying to listen to God's voice and all of this. And I, I didn't hear necessarily God's voice, but I did hear the words of St. Ambrose that he said to St. Monica about, uh, the uh, the tear so many the mother of so many tears 
will will definitely be heard by God or will yes. be forgotten by God. That whatever his quote is there, and and it, it did bring joy to my heart in that moment because I wasn't thinking about Saint Augustine or Saint Anthony or anyone, but I I actually felt almost like my friend Saint Ambrose was there for a moment with me, reminding me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, I so like I, that. I thank you so much. <laughs> I like that. I'm glad you're laughing now because to go from Monica, tears to laughter. <laughs> yeah, I know it's painful, Beth. I know, I know it's painful, and it's the great unknown and the worry and all those things that a good mother does. But I'm confident that if you adopt this approach, he will. It'll be too much for him at some point, and he's going to circle back to you. Thank you so much, Patrick. I really, you know how much your, your advice means to me today. Thank You're you welcome, so much. Beth. God bless you and your son, too. Oh, well, um, I'm looking at the clock, so we're going to have to wrap things up for today. What a great way to end the, the show on, though. Uh, victory will be at hand soon enough. I, I feel confident of that. And all you moms and dads who are going through a similar situation, don't give up hope. Don't be beaten down and discouraged. I know it's painful. But God loves your children even more than you do. So call upon him when your children are far away from the Lord and wandering and stumbling and just hang in there, be patient, and God eventually will bring them back. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow. 